the checklist isn't your job. The checklist is a way to make sure that you get as good at your job as you can as quickly as possible. Hey everybody, thanks for joining us on All the Responsibility, None of the Authority, our podcast for product managers, product marketers, entrepreneurs, and innovators of all stripes. We're here to help you create better products and more successful product companies. I'm Nils Davis with my co-host Rob McGroarty, and Rob is going to kick off this episode with the topic of the day. The first hundred days. So yeah, so thanks, Niels. Um, we've talked a couple times, and there's been a lot of discussion, both uh, in conversations we've had as well as out in the general populace, about new product managers, how to get a first job as a PM, and then there's not as much discussion, I think, about how to make that first job, or how to make the beginning of a second or third product management role more effective. And to a certain extent, this is sort of the the compilation of mistakes that I've made and, and those that I've discussed with turned into uh, proactive suggestions. But And some of them are my mistakes, we have to be honest. Well, yeah, I mean, everybody makes a lot of mistakes. And I assume, you know, even with a list like this and having experience, people continue to make mistakes over and over. Um, but this is basically going to be a 10-point list to kind of go over some of the major pitfalls and how to avoid them. And then hopefully start out either your first or uh, your first 100 days at a new company more effectively. You know, I just started a new job, uh, well, it's over a year ago now, but I tried to have my own list and I got some of those things done that I wanted. And and if I'd had this list, I probably would have done a little bit better job, honestly. Same here. So we'll start, start it off number one. Uh, and this is something that you hear in different ways from different areas, but the general concept holds extremely true, and that is have a one-on-one -on -one meeting with basically everyone. Now, if you have a 200, 300, 500-person organization, maybe not everyone, but look at everybody who is going to be a stakeholder in the work that you do, whether they're specific superiors or they're people who are in adjacent organizations like marketing and engineering that will care about the things you do day-to-day and are likely higher up the food chain. Right. And I'd actually add sales as a very important uh, set of stakeholders to be talking to early on. Absolutely. Not, not only will you get a lot of actually good product feedback, although, you, of course, you have to take it all with a grain of salt when you get it from salespeople, but they're your connection to, to customers often. Right. Right. And regardless of the, the part of the organization that they're in, there's going to be a tie-in and there's going to be a need to either borrow resources from them or uh, they're going to need to get something from you. And at the end of the day, nothing's going to get done until you break down some initial relationship barriers and understand where the other person is coming from. So that's kind of the whole goal of this first step. And it extends beyond just the superiors or the people higher up the food chain. It includes people who may report to you that mm -hmm. you're suddenly becoming a manager of, if that's the case. Uh, as well as colleagues, people who may be around the same level as you, but are you know across the aisle, quote unquote, who are in different areas that you're going to need to communicate with more effectively. You're going to need to borrow resources or potentially get them as um, 
as sort of a groundswell or, or stakeholders in pushing an idea that you have forward, being able to garner that support early is key. And the one-on-one is really all about making sure that you understand where they're coming from, what their goals are, and what their struggles are, whether it relates to your specific job or not. Right. And, I, and I'd also add to this that this one-on-one is really the first conversation of hopefully a long-term conversation with, with all these folks. Um, you know, you can, you can learn some things from them in the first conversation and they get to know you and get to understand a little bit of your style and you'll be needing to talk to them over and over again. Uh, so part of the reason to do this, and this is just experience from my, uh, from, from my last job and, and other jobs is it's really nice to know everybody in the company that you'll be working with and, and, and to start that relationship right away so that it's not awkward later on when you actually need to talk to folks. Right. None of this is going to be the the last conversation you have with somebody, as you mentioned. The goal is to make sure that you're establishing good, clear communication from the very beginning, because as a PM, you are very much torn between many different angles and uh, goals across the organization. So that brings us up to number two, which is getting expectations. Um, This is very hard to do at a, uh, at a high quality level. So understanding from your superiors as well as your peers and to a certain extent the people who report to you, if you have them, what they're going to expect from you. So getting sort of a, a minimum requirement, what would be a good middle of the road, and then an idea of what would be really, really great from their perspective to get from you will take maybe more than one conversation because very few people are actually prepared to answer that question when you first ask them, regardless of how many times they've written down job requirements or, or uh, you know, done a review of somebody in your position. It's actually very hard to get to the bottom of this, but that to me is the next most important. You're actually going to have probably had some of this conversation in the job interview, or oftentimes, often you will, but you need to know more than what you learned then everybody's going to turn the job interview into sort of a sales pitch as well. So getting behind the, this is what we want. We're going to make it to the moon and really understanding what, what's going to be required of you day to day is, is a whole nother level. And I, and I think that really ties into the next point, which is about um, the assumptions. The expectations are sort of one part of that. The expectations of what a product manager does, for example, and what a good product manager looks like to them. But there's also all these other expectations are sort of, in, in some ways, it's sort of sub-rosa knowledge about how the product works, how the company works, what the relationships are, uh, things like your release schedule even, um, how good the team is, how much the customers like you, and things like that. So you're going to really want to try to find out what the company, how the company thinks about itself. Now, just to stop there for a half second, did you say sub rosa? Yes, I did say sub rosa. For those of us who didn't take Latin in high school, <laughs> can you explain what that is? It means under the surface. Fantastic. Yeah. It's about the assumptions that people may not even have articulated, um, but maybe they're implied by the way that they talk about what's going on in the company. Absolutely. And that's this is going to be one of the harder things to really get to, um, and I'd encourage everyone to try to actually write it down in a way... Uh, or in sort of plain English in a list, because there's going to be assumptions that you make or you're encouraged to make through indirect comments about literally everything. Uh, the big ones that I've noticed are, you know, as Niels pointed out, the team re- the release schedule, um, the how much the customers love you, 
And there's a lot of other stuff. There's how much can your organization actually do research? And that's really only going to be identified by looking at specific tools, seeing the number of times that they've done it in the past, and then testing out to see how willing the organization is to sort of put a, put either brakes on it or pause to go and do real customer research. But there's also stuff like the technical, infra- technical infrastructure. Is the product in a place where it can scale? What are the limitations? Are, are people willing to accept that or mention it? Is it in a transition phase where there's going to be a lot of rebuilding? What is the UI like? Do customers actually love the product or is that sort of an assumption you were given? Now, if you're in a consumer-facing product, it's pretty easy to deal with that because you can probably get just a quick Google to understand whether or not uh, people love the product. But if you're in a B2B or an enterprise uh, business, it's going to be much harder to understand if people actually love your product. And then you keep going down the list. Everything that you seem to be spoon-fed as an assumption, write it down. And then in step four, which is most important to me, find a way to test every single one of those assumptions. So once you've written them down, write you know a test or put another date next to it at the date that you've finally either tested and agreed with or you've disproven a particular assumption. But honestly, those first 100 days, which is roughly three months, if nobody's pointing that out, you have one quarter to decide whether or not that assumption is something you can rely on going forward. And that's huge. So really, really, really testing each and every one of those assumptions is just beyond critical. I think the uh, the next couple points on the list are actually really good ways to test some of those assumptions. We have, for number five, get on help calls or help chat. So you're basically working with the support desk. And, the, and number six is going to be going getting involved in sales calls. And so both of those are going to help you a lot with testing out the assumptions of some of the, particularly from the product side, the technical side about, about the product. Does it, does it scale? Well, you're going to hear something about that when you're talking to, with support. Uh, do customers love it? You'll hear a lot about that with support and you'll get a lot of that insight from sales as well. If, if customers love the product or it's appealing to use, Sales is not going to be complaining about that. They'll be complaining about other things. But if the product is not attractive or is hard to use, sales is definitely going to tell you about that a lot. Yep. And you get two cases or two opportunities here. And just to clarify, this is number five and number six, which is getting on a help chat or a help call, uh, technical support, et cetera, and then a sales chat or call or, or a deal, whatever it may be. You get two opportunities here to prove to other teams that, A, you're willing to get in the trenches with them, right? You actually gain that uh, that advocacy for different areas. Credibility. It's a, credibility, it's a absolutely. great way of building credibility, for sure. And you get that firsthand knowledge where you can, again, identify whether or not a certain assumption is correct. But then, you know, really understanding from, again, the people across the aisle, what their pain points may be is huge. So being able to close a deal and showing that you can do that, that's awesome. It really validates your capabilities. But then you also know whether or not it's an easy product to sell and what some of the, the common arguments are. The other really good thing about being on sales calls is you can also learn the strengths and weaknesses of the sales team. And since a big part of the product management process is what I call go-to-market, meaning how do we talk about the product to the market? 
um, how do we validate that a prospect has the problem that we solve? You can get a good sense of that uh, in the sales calls. And also, I guess the other piece of go-to-market that I wanted to mention is objection handling. And you can see how the sales force handles objections, and you can often give them guidance on how to handle objections. Yeah, definitely. So that moves us on to number seven, which is talking about partners. Put a caveat here because your organization may or may not have really critical partners. But if you're something like what uh, what I do at Agility, we have a number of 75 or more, I think, major partners and identifying the top one or two and really getting an introduction, like truly sitting down, talking very similar to the one-on-one with either your counterpart or the person who manages the partnership on the other side can be very, very critical as you move forward. So um, being able to play dumb, getting the lay of the land while sort of validating some of these assumptions allows you to get that contact, begin that relationship, and really get to the bottom of whether or not this is a partnership that you can rely on as you consider new product features or whether or not it may be something that you, know, you end up finding a competitor in the short run or the long run. Now, at, at Inatos right now, we don't have partners in that same way. Uh, so it, this is less applicable to my particular company. But in the past, I certainly have put a lot of attention into working with partners, understanding their needs, making sure that the product had capabilities that, that they would need to in order to sell and so that I under, I needed to understand what they needed to sell. Absolutely. And that kind of brings us to number eight, which is all the things you should know when you're ready to get started. Um, so number eight is to get a list of information streams. And you can phrase this a lot of different ways, but the whole concept is to know very, very early in your career with this company, where's the churn data? Where are the bug records? Where are the customer support logs? Where's uh, your fastest route to reaching out to new customers. How do you identify current customers? Where's the product usage data, the engagement metrics? How can you understand how people are using the product? And then almost more importantly, what tools are currently in place to test new ideas, iterate, A-B test, and then get the customer feedback? If there are none of these, or you know, you only can check off one or two of the boxes, then it's probably a good sign that you're going to spend the next however many hundreds of days getting all this instrumented because there's no way that you should be able to run an effective large-scale product organization without these basic uh, information streams. So that moves us on to number nine, which is sort of a, an interesting one that I've heard a lot of people struggling with lately, and that's Understanding what your boss, the person you report to directly, who manages you, what they believe they're good at. And this may take a little while, a couple, couple conversations about their past, about their experience, whatever it may be. Find out what it is that they believe they are good at. And there's usually one or two, maybe three, but everybody has those things. They're like, oh, I'm actually really good at writing, or I'm really good at marketing messages, or I'm really good at understanding what the customer wants, right? There's... Mm-hmm probably a bunch and it depends on on where you are in the organization but there's three things to do when you finally get that information one if it is what you do be prepared to start off learning a lot 
because if they think they're good at it, hopefully they are, and you can learn a lot. But then be prepared as you catch up, unless they're moving faster than you in their own learning curve and that same topic, be prepared to butt some heads, right? You may slowly catch up to where they are. The learning curve may bring you within striking distance of a particular topic or skill. And that may mean that you have different perspectives. So being prepared for that, you'll be able to feel it out early and either find support from other people in the organization so that it's not just the two of you arguing things out, but you can also identify the way to work with them when you have differing opinions mm -hmm. way in advance of having the strongest weekly held opinions. Well, the, the other flip, the flip side of that is if the boss does something that you're good at and they hired you for that, it may be that it's time for the boss to not do that anymore. Right. The boss maybe Absolutely. should be doing management instead, instead of like, you know, if you are the first direct report for a product manager, then maybe that product manager needs to do more product management, more management of product management and less product management per se. And so that's always something to watch out for. Right. Yep. And that's something to, to go back to the earlier expectations. If you find out that they do and think that they're good at the thing they hired you for, find out. Find out if they expect to utilize you as a way to separate themselves from that day-to-day -day function and then try to map it out. Get it out in front of the conversation. Now, the flip side is if it's not what you were hired to do, then there's two things you need to be prepared for. One, you need to prepare to explain yourself a lot because none of it's going to be intuitive to the person who doesn't think they're good at the thing that you're good at or doing day-to-day. -day. Mm -hmm. So... There's going to be some education requirements on your side to teach everyone else in the room why it is that you said something, where it is you're pulling information from, any sources that are maybe greater than you to sort of add uh, some validity. And the other thing is to find the other person whose job it is that, this, that your boss thinks they are good at. Now, maybe if you're in small enough an organization, it's not a big deal. But if you happen to report to a chief product officer or a VP of engineering, and they think that they're good at both engineering management and product management, or they think they're just good at engineering management, find the engineering manager under them and start to make friends. Because in the same way that you might end up butting heads if they were good at what you are hired to do, that may happen for your counterpart. And being there to support them is really critical. One of the things I often say is that, uh, particularly about point one of the, of the it's not what you do case, is I, I have this phrase, your obvious is your art. It's very likely that things that are obvious to you are not obvious to other people. It, it's really why they hired you oftentimes is because you have some intuition or some sense that other people don't have. But be, they don't have it because it's just they can't do it. It's out, it's outside their ability to, to think or it think it's thinking a different way and you it is often difficult to bring people along with that um, without as you say some backup some exp explanations um, and some and some having proven your ability to think in that way absolutely so that brings us to the last point which is is more of a concept or a task to complete as opposed to some of the other steps, which are much more about learning. This one is actually a task uh, that I call the product audit. And basically what that means is use all these relationships that you've built 
all the people you've talked to, the sales chats, the support chats, and try to list out every single use case that your product or your portion of the product deals with. So whatever your user type is, whatever their use cases are, list them out in as granular a detail as you possibly can. And then find out, again, back with the data sources, all of the old release notes. This sounds really painful, but <laughs> if you can go over, let's say the last two, five, two to five years of release notes, depending on, on how granular they are and how many releases there were, map out what has been done over the evolution of the product on a timeline. And you should get something that roughly represents like a growing organism or a growing product, really. But that gives you a chance to visually depict how the product has grown since inception. You can identify some holes in particular use cases or where development has gone into something that seems unfinished. And then you can get the chance to overlay it with a week by week or month by month uh, set of metrics like new sales, churn, number of new tickets, data usage, etc. And you can start to see relationships that may not be obvious to people who are even witnessing them day to day because it's too easy to, to get two or three releases down the road and all of a sudden go, wait, we've got really high churn. I wonder why this is. Um, so if you can start out in those first 100 days by providing a visual representation of this, you're going to be incredibly valuable even as you're learning. Now, in, in an ideal world, you would be handed this, but not very many organizations are doing this. And then the final thing is, as you're making these assumptions, not assumptions, as you are making these observations of the correlation between new sales and churn and new features and, um, and some of the, the holes that engineering may or may not have left as they've gone down this product roadmap, try your best not to accept brush-offs. And what I mean is, if you tell, say, your boss, hey, I, I just did this audit. It looks like we had some really high churn in the weeks following this release, uh, and it was very UI heavy. Did we take a look at this? And they could go, oh yeah, well, blah, 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 blah. it's no big deal. You have data to prove that it's probably a big deal. So anything that doesn't provide a reasonable, data-driven, fairly explicit answer, I would sort of brush off. I would, sorry, not accept that brush off. I would look at a deeper and deeper answer to see if that's something that you could have as an early base hit to fix the product, to fill a gap, to correct a mistake and get things moving in the right direction. This is a really cool idea. I have not seen this before, Rob, on a uh, on a first 100 days guideline. And I think it's a really interesting one, obviously pretty hard to do, but... Yeah, it's not an easy task. And that's why it's, it's 100 days and not a 30 day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, we've done all, we've gotten to all 10. So we'll put the list of 10 up on the, the website when we post this episode. We have some closing comments about your, essentially your attitude about this. And of course, we have our, we also have our um, three takeaways. We'll have that at the end. But there's a few sort of notes about your attitude, I think, during these first 100 days. One of them is you got the job because you're smart and you have good instincts. But one of the things that you will find, and this is goes harkens back to our conversation that we had last time about getting customer feedback, is you don't really know anything yet. There's a lot of secrets and a lot of 
under the covers kind of information that you're really going to be trying to surface. And even if you have good ideas and you want to make decisions, you really need to be kind of validating and cross-checking them as you go against what the reality is of this of this company. A lot of what you're trying to do during that first 100 days is understand what the reality is of the company so that you can make your ideas and decisions uh, fit better into reality for the company. Absolutely. And there's the the very easy example of uh, having strong opinions weekly held. I think that's really important as you finish out these 100 days. I think at the very beginning, you're not going to have strong opinions in most cases, unless you're fairly executive hire. You're not really hired to come in with opinions. You're hired to create them and, and then move forward with them. So as you near the end of these 100 days and, and you're completing this checklist, remember that you can feel very strongly about something, but you should be willing and able to change that opinion when you're faced with uh, conflicting information, especially for things like the product audit. It's a really good point. It's a great phrase to, to carry around. People are impressed when you say it, actually. Strong opinions, weekly held. And you may have strong opinions. You may have learned some things in your previous job that are directly applicable to your current job or that seem to be. That's the point. They may be directly applicable or they may seem to be directly applicable. You don't actually know yet. And so you need to be careful as you go through. And this, is, this of course, continues to be true throughout your career uh, in every job. You may not always know everything. And so you, you need to be prepared to have your mind changed if necessary. Happened to me today, uh, yesterday. I wrote a really great spec, and somebody looked at it and said, well, what if we did this instead? And I said, oh, that's a much better idea. <laughs> it's never too late to change your mind. It really isn't. <laughs> so on things we hopefully will not be changing our minds about, we have three major takeaways. Um, the first one is, as we pointed out in many previous episodes, you can't do 100 things at a time, and 10 is no exception. Really, you should be focusing on two, three, maybe four at the most of these items at a time, really trying to make some progress and then move forward. But don't don't give yourself a hard time if you're not moving through them as fast as you thought. 100 days is a suggestion. It's an estimate. But really, the goal of this is to improve in your career and whether that takes you 50 days, 100 days, or 200 days. As long as you get there and you're continuously moving that direction, that's the key. Right. And if you're at a job where you've been there 100, year, 100 days or a year or what, whatever, and you haven't done some of these things, you might consider doing them. Absolutely. Because, again, this checklist isn't your job. This is takeaway number two. The, the checklist isn't your job. The checklist is a way to make sure that you get as good as your, at your job as you can as quickly as possible. Because you were hired to add value to the organization, and you chose the job because it should help you in your career. So accelerating to the point where both of those are taking effect is really critical. And then the last takeaway is, well, this list. We'll be adding it to the show notes. Uh, it's a starting point. It's definitely not an exhaustive list. And we hope that you'll take it as that and continue to modify. Obviously, sending us any feedback you have, if you like it, if you hate it. If you've got something that you really think should be added to the Baker's Dozen, we're happy to hear it. You know, that leads us right into the sort of the closing out. You know, thanks for listening. We hope you like this episode and it's valuable to you. And we'd really love to hear your stories about your first 100 days. 
or your approach to the first 100 days or what you've done in your first 100 days or coached other people on how to have the, the most successful first 100 days. And speaking of first 100 days and sort of coaching and really getting into potentially your first job as a PM, we're going to be having office hours. Um, we'll be doing uh, a couple one-on-one conversations. We'll record them, make them part of the podcast, um, potentially not in their entirety, but selections from it. So if you're getting started or if you're in a frustrating spot in your career, shoot us a message. We'll you know, set up some schedules and we'll get some office hours so that Niels and I can both have one-on-one discussions uh, and give you whatever feedback we, we can possibly add. I think these will be two-on-one discussions. Correct. Two-on-one discussions with me and Rob. That's office hours. If you are just getting started or you need some advice, you can do it. We can do it anonymously or not, depending on how you feel about having your questions about product management aired for the world. Exactly. Or at least the people that listen to the show. Which is, of course, the whole world. It is the world. In fact, if you want to listen to the show, you can easily find our episodes on iTunes and our website, which is alltheresponsibility.com. We'd love it if you subscribed and or gave us a rating on iTunes, or if you use a podcast app, if you can recommend our episodes, that's awesome. And I want to remind you that our intro and outro music is by the awesome Neat Beats, so you can check him out on Spotify or at neatbeats.bandcamp.com. And is there anything else we need to say, Rob? I think we need to say goodbye. Okay, goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you.